Previously on Flying the Line, the United Pilots agree to the concessionary Blue Skies deal. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including member insurance. Choose from life, disability, dental, Medicare Advantage, identity theft, and more. Separate plans designed for Canadian members are available, including life, auto and home, and critical illness. Visit memberinsurance.alpa.org. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 16 of B-Scales and Alpa's Future, The United Strike of 1985, Part 1. A strike always carries the possibility of loss. Before deregulation, Alpa's fights with management mainly ended in victory. Ask National Airlines' Ted Baker, Southern Airways' Frank Hulse, or the notorious E.L. Cord of Century Airlines about that. But in the anti-labor 1980s, with political conservatism rampant on a field of deregulation, Frank Lorenzo had reversed that historic tide. Could Alpa win a fight in this brave new world, where government tilted against labor instead of toward it? The pilots of United Airlines would confront that question directly. The Blue Skies deal turned sour in record time. What the United Pilots thought would inaugurate a golden age turned into a time of troubles within a year. As a result, MEC Chairman John Ferg, the man most responsible for Blue Skies, saw his standing with United's pilots plummet. United CEO Dick Ferris had sold Blue Skies to him using all the trappings of friendship, flattery, and a rational calculation of his pilots' self-interest. United Status Rep and future Strike Preparedness Committee Chair Rick Dubinsky, originally a supporter, began feeling uneasy about Ferg after the so-called second videotape, a 1982 attempt to dispel rising pilot concerns about blue skies, paid for by the company but produced by the MEC. Dubinsky described it as propaganda, adding that there was no objectivity. Simply put, Blue Skies failed to accomplish what Ferris promised, either because he completely miscalculated what he was trying to achieve or was simply incompetent. But in one sense, Ferris wielded Blue Skies with remarkable skill. United's balance sheet showed record profits by 1984, and in cost per seat mile, the airline ranked as the most efficient unionized carrier. By early 1985, the Air Transport Association listed only People Express, Southwest, and Continental, all non-union or with independent unions, as having lower seat mile costs than United. But what did United's pilots get out of the deal? By the summer of 1982, barely a year into the new contract, they looked increasingly foolish as it became clear that Blue Sky's only real purpose was to increase United's profits by exploiting its work rules. On April 22, 1985, Ferris used those profits to sign an agreement to buy the entire Pan Am Pacific route structure and all the aircraft required to fly it, 
11 long-range Boeing 747 SPs for $750 million. This incredible deal, which shifted one-fourth of Pan Am to United, pilots included, was a blockbuster, then the biggest single deal in the history of commercial aviation. But it was hardly the kind of expansion United's pilots expected, and it benefited them little in terms of career progression. Because Alpa was involved in the purchase, it could ensure proper application of merger policy, and Pan Am's 430 transferring pilots would count themselves lucky because of it. Coming just as contract negotiations intensified, the Pan Am acquisition undercut Ferris's argument that United had to negotiate additional concessions from Alpa to survive. Stockholders would also raise questions about the purchase, not only because they thought Ferris overpaid for Pan Am, but because something didn't smell right about it. Leafleting pilots outside United's annual stockholders meeting in Chicago made a point of sharing these misgivings. One aspect of the Pan Am buyout is notable for its labor implications. When compared to Eastern's 1982 purchase of Braniff's Latin American routes, the United Pilot Group comes off very well. The Pan Am pilots, who now wore United uniforms, owed a lot to the fact that United's pilots wanted no part of any expansion plan that would shove fellow aviators out of their flight decks and off of their routes. The fact that this came up in 1985, as the strike neared and as United's pilots were desperately building internal unity, probably had something to do with it too. But in the long history of merger animosity, United's pilot group stood out for its sense of fair play and commitment to justice, particularly in this instance. Thus, as the Blue Skies contract came up for renewal, Ferris talked about using it to highlight United's growth and presence in the aviation industry. Neither Ferris nor Ferg seemed to consider how the pilots might react. Almost immediately after news of Blue Skies hit the industry in 1981, Robert Crandall, the powerful CEO of American Airlines, began using the United deal as a wedge to split open his own pilot's contract. Leaders of the Allied Pilots Association, the clone that resulted from the 1963 split with ALPA, were susceptible to Crandall's pressure tactics for many reasons, not the least being that they saw blue skies as aimed at them. Crandall cleverly exempted Americans' current pilots from United-style across-the-board givebacks by proposing a two-tier scale that would pay new hires substantially less. He would first impose a B-scale on Americans' mechanics in 1982 and then immediately target APA for a similar contract. Americans' pilots were on Crandall's B-scale agenda in any case, but Blue Skies provided a convenient excuse and plenty of leverage. In 1983, the APA leaders agreed to a contract that would pay new hire pilots approximately one-half the going rate. Deregulation had rekindled the traditional rivalry between United and American, historically the two biggest airlines in the industry. To APA leaders, blue skies seemed like blatant aggression against their carrier, justifying a response. Crandall sweetened the deal by granting a small pay raise, agreeing not to lay off pilots for the life of the contract, promising to recall 500 furloughed pilots by 1986, 
and establishing a profit-sharing plan. In effect, this first major airline, B-Scale, bribed Americans' 3,400 pilots with some modest benefits. At first, the American pilot's gamble paid off. Crandall, unlike Ferris, used his givebacks to grow the airline, not that it benefited Americans' pilots that much. By the early 1990s, lagging pay and increasingly harsh working conditions had made Americans' flight crews among the angriest in all of aviation, driven to the desperate consideration of a wildcat sickout. This massive action forced Crandall to cancel 11% of his flights over the holidays in January 1991 and to run full-page apology ads. In a startling lapse, Americans' publicity attacks mistakenly identified their own pilots' union as ALPA, compelling them to spend even more money to correctly identify the APA in additional ads. The APA's leaders sacrificed nothing themselves, but their short-sighted selfishness had profound implications for the very future of pilot unionism. If the B-scale worked as planned, in a short period of time, a majority of pilots would be second-class citizens, resentful of their predecessors and the union that had sold them out. When the subject of the United Pilots' own B-scale crisis came in 1985, they argued strongly that the resentments of underpaid new hires would inevitably affect not only unionism, but also crew coordination and safety. At almost the exact moment the APA was gambling with the future, blue skies began unraveling at United. By 1982, barely a year into blue skies, scattered results from local council elections indicated an initial wave of opposition. This change in support eventually became an anti-FERG landslide by 1983 because Ferris had failed to take any advantage, in a business sense, of the pilot givebacks. In all probability, Dick Ferris didn't use Blue Skies to grow the airline because he simply didn't know how, at least in the beginning. Ferris's qualifications for United's top job were thin, and his career after leaving United seems to confirm that he was, as the saying goes, an empty suit. In fairness, Ferris might have entered Blue Skies in good faith, and then, noticing the success and media attention Lorenzo was getting with his hardline approach to labor, changed his mind to try and destabilize Alpa's presence at his airline. In the exclusive world of top airline executives, not all decisions have economic justification. In fact, a plausible case can be made that this kind of behavior could generate a certain status among the era's top airline executives. Perhaps this drive to cut pilot salaries sprang from competitive urges run amok, a kind of anti-labor feeding frenzy among boardroom sharks. Maybe these airline executives believed their own propaganda. Many of them seemed to think that modern pilots were unworthy of their heritage, that they were unwilling to take risks that might jeopardize their affluent lifestyles. Perhaps the airline industry's Ferris's and Lorenzo's believed that unlike the pioneering pilots of old, this new generation of aviators had no real fight in them. If that's what Dick Ferris thought, the pilots of United were about to prove him wrong. The rapid transformation of this pilot group, 
as it reacted to Ferris's misuse of blue skies, stunned everybody. Hank Duffy, who became Alpa's president just as the phenomenon became full-blown in January 1983, had a box seat. He recalled that the whole personality of the United Pilot Group seemed to be recharged. United Pilots were suddenly involved in every aspect of the Union. As awareness of Blue Sky's inadequacy grew, it turned to anger among the pilots. Even Negotiating Committee Chair Roger Hall had slipped into opposition as he came to doubt the agreement that he had brokered. For John Ferg, who had ambitions for National Alpa office, the clouding over of blue skies had devastating consequences. Without the support of his own MEC, he would not be able to challenge for Alpa's presidency in 1986. Ferg desperately needed a third term as MEC chair to keep alive any chances of ousting Hank Duffy. But a long-standing United policy limited the chair to two consecutive terms unless the MEC approved a third one by a two-thirds majority. At its June 1983 meeting, the MEC dashed Ferg's hopes. He could not secure even a simple majority, let alone the two-thirds he needed. Ferg responded by becoming even more adamantly committed to Ferris's view of blue skies. He would shortly damage his standing with the pilot group beyond repair by unilaterally deferring one of the regular Blue Skies pay raises which Ferris was objecting to. Ferg's deferral of the pay increase negatively resonated with each United pilot and everyone flying the line, no matter how remote from the center of action. When Ferris eventually created a flight ops management position for Ferg on the eve of the strike, Perhaps the MEC's actions made it easier for him to accept it. But nobody who lived through this episode thought Ferg's managerial status was genuine, and almost everyone harbored deep suspicions about his role in encouraging Ferris to challenge Alpa. By January 1984, with Roger Hall taking over a splintered MEC from John Ferg, Dick Ferris had to be thinking of the similar situation at Continental, which Lorenzo had exploited. Ferris probably concluded that the time was right to destabilize Alpa at United, if not break it entirely. Roger Hall was a junior captain when the MEC elected him chair in October 1983 by a single vote over the vastly more experienced former chair, Jerry Pride, one of United's most senior and respected captains. Simultaneously with Hall's taking office, a new negotiating committee began working on a contract to replace Blue Skies. As MEC chair, Hall effectively remained on the committee, actively participating in selected phases of the negotiations. The new committee had need of Hall's experience, for the talks went badly almost from the start. Next time on Flying the Line, during the United 29-day strike in 1985, the MEC miraculously convinces 570 new pilots in training not to cross the picket line. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 16, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. 
To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2024, all rights reserved.